Hi, everyone, and welcome to the April 9th, 2021 episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor here at Automotive News Canada. It's been more than two years since the federal government last delivered a budget, but the wait is nearly over. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's Liberal majority government will unveil a budget on April 19th. So I was wondering, what exactly does the Canadian auto industry want to see in that budget? And with margins and profits still in the black at dealerships, are incentives and financial assistance even needed at all? We'll find the answers to those questions, recap the first quarter sales, address the microchip and inventory shortages, and more, when I speak with David Adams, the CEO of the Global Automakers of Canada, on this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. Dave, thanks for joining me on the podcast this week. Always happy to uh, to visit with you, Greg. Thanks for having me. No problem. Always glad to have you. Let's jump right in. Uh, the federal government says it will present a budget later this month, probably around April 19th or so. What do you most want to see in that budget for automotive in Canada? Well, I think actually the government has done a good job of putting in place um, you know, incentive programs and initiatives to encourage investment in the automotive marketplace. I think the thing that we're most desirous of seeing in the, in the budget is really supports for where the government wants to go with their own direction as it relates to uh, the uptake of zero emission vehicles. Um, there's always talk of sev mandates and you know, whether or not those are appropriate, but really I think what what's been obvious through survey after survey is that um, you know for people who consider purchasing ZEVs, electric vehicles, they need uh, you know price that's affordable. They also need to be able to have the the confidence that they can charge their vehicle, you know, essentially wherever they want to or need to. And really, there's a lot of people that still don't know uh, a whole lot about electric vehicles. So I think there's a, you know, there's a, a huge interest and, and need for an awareness and education program out there as far as electric vehicles are concerned. So those would be, you know, um, initiatives that would uh, we would welcome and then I think would support where the government is trying to go as well. You know, we've also been um, working with others in the industry to look at a potential scrappage program in the industry to, again, uh, act as a bit of a stimulus in the marketplace, but also um, from an environmental perspective to get older vehicles off the road and replace those with, uh, with newer vehicles um, on the basis that really any newer vehicle is going to be a less polluting and generally consume less fuel than any older vehicle. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about that. Should the scrappage program be tied to zero emissions vehicle? You only get the credit when you um, trade in your old car if you buy a zero emissions vehicle, or should it be any new vehicle? Because as you mentioned, newer vehicles are almost always cleaner um, than the outgoing models. So should it be tied to zero emissions or should it be open to any new vehicle? Yeah, we would take the position that it really should be open to any new vehicle because I think, yeah, as I mentioned a moment ago, price is a significant consideration for you know, most consumers. So it's um, it's a bit of a stretch to have somebody who might have a, a 12-year-old vehicle to scrap their old vehicle. And probably one of the reasons they're driving an older vehicle is because they can't afford a new vehicle sure. to then make the, the extra leap to pay you know, a, a premium over a, an ICE vehicle, for instance, to, to purchase a, a ZEV vehicle. Um, so I know you know that's been bandied about, but I think the the ultimate uptake of a program like that would likely be 
minimal. It may be good for optics, but I don't think it would really achieve any any um, you know purposeful policy outcome in terms of uh, taking those older vehicles off the road. So I think it should be should be available for um, you know, for all vehicles that are uh, are marketed in the Canadian marketplace. Um, yeah, I think that that makes the most sense, and uh, that will provide the greatest opportunity to get older vehicles off of the road. You brought up something that I never really thought of in the past, and that is the education portion of electric vehicles or zero emissions vehicles. Whose responsibility is that ultimately, though? Is it is it not the automaker's um, sort of job to um, illustrate and market what they sell or what they plan to sell? Or does this fall on the government um, in in an effort to let people know this is where we're going? I just wonder how you you see that divide or whose responsibility it is to actually educate the public on zero emissions vehicles. Sure. No, it's a good question. That's a good point because I think we would look at it that it really is a shared responsibility between the automakers and uh, and probably government because I think the uh, – you know, the challenge with any new technology is um, is awareness. And uh, if it's not something that people are aware of um, and understand, then it's, it's that much more difficult for them to make the leap to embrace a new technology. And, uh, you know, part of that awareness and education uh, also comes down to the benefits that the, that the technology can provide. And I think until uh, people are persuaded that, you know, those benefits outweigh you know, any upfront costs that they might be incurring at the outset, then um, that's, you know, that's a, a bit of a, a bit too tall a hill to climb right now for a lot of consumers. So um, I think it's a, a joint um, uh, responsibility between industry and government. And, and also, you know, I think what we found is that sometimes the, the best educators can be those individuals that currently have uh, the technology and are driving the technology now. So there's a lot of volunteer organizations in the zero emission vehicle community that um, you know are often the best salespeople for the technology. And we actually saw this occur, you know, a number of years ago with uh, when hybrids were first introduced to the marketplace. But you know, we had uh, taxi drivers, for instance, in Vancouver and Victoria that uh, adopted. Um, hybrids and droves and, and then effectively became the best salespeople for the technology to anybody that was in the vehicle with them because they learned about what a what a hybrid was, uh, how it operated and how much uh, fuel and, and maintenance were saved. And you know, we see this uh, the same model being uh, looked at by by others now with uh, the zero emission vehicle technology that if we can get it into the the fleets and have uh, people experience the technology and be able to ask questions of people that are driving it, then sometimes those individuals can become the best salespeople. So you you mentioned sort of the education part of it. And one of the things we've learned um, through surveys is that people still in Canada have this range anxiety of, of, of this fear of not being able to charge when they want to, when they need to, where they need yeah. to. So I, yeah. I'm curious, what's a more important investment by the government in your members' eyes? In incentives on EVs themselves when they purchase them? Um, or is it um, sort of the spending on infrastructure for charging and, and charging stations and implementing these things in new condo builds and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Which is the more important incentive um, in your members' eyes? Yeah, I don't think it's a it's an either or situation. It's a it's a both. I think because uh, you know, on the one hand, people won't consider the vehicles unless it's something that 
um, that's affordable. And then, uh, you know, they they also won't consider the vehicle unless, as I said, they have some assurance that they do have the capability of being able to, um, to fuel, uh, the vehicle kind of wherever and whenever they need to. And yeah, you're right. I, I mean, there are certain, um, it probably comes down to the municipal level where, you know, municipalities need to, um, start making it, uh, a requirement that, and, you know, uh, MERBs and uh, condos and any other such buildings where there is no infrastructure currently that that becomes a requirement of putting up any new building so that, uh, you know, kind of regardless of where you live, you'd at least have that opportunity to charge your vehicle at home in the evening. And I think, again, as uh, looking at it through another lens, if you you concentrate on the education and awareness piece, then I think there's also an opportunity there to allay people of some of the concerns that arise from, you know, the, the range anxiety when they just think initially about purchasing an electric vehicle. And, uh, you know, sometimes education can solve a lot of problems. You mentioned to my colleague, uh, John Irwin, in uh, a story this week, um, when it came to incentives, and you said, and I'm quoting now, we're just waiting on some consistent funding on the incentive program. Could you just elaborate on that? What, what's been inconsistent about it or what consistency are you looking for? I think you probably meant that, you know, there's 5,000 here right now, but that might go away. Are, are you looking for a longer term commitment? I'm just wondering if you could clarify that statement. Yeah, I, I think what we've seen is that it's it's been a bit of a patchwork, as you know, and when you look at, um, you know, we have the federal program in place across Canada, which is fine, and then we have uh, incentives that have been offered up in BC and Quebec and more recently in Nova Scotia and now Prince Edward Island. Uh, but I think a lot of the provincial programs, especially the program in BC, there's no there's no um, secure funding for that particular program. So uh, the provincial component of it, so that uh, in essence, they allocate a set amount of money and it's sort of like, well, when that money is used up then uh, it, it's not available anymore. So they, right. they have to sort of scramble for funding. So I think what we would like to see is um, at least at the uh, provincial level and also at the federal level, a commitment if we all say, okay, well, let's make the assumption that it's going to be at least 2025 before there's uh, there's price parity that, um, you know, these incentives will stay in place until such time as, uh, uh, you know, until 2025, essentially. Um, and that way, I think then um, manufacturers and consumers have the confidence of knowing that, okay, well, I, I, I know I can make my decision on an EV anytime between now and 2025. I, I was going to ask you that, actually. How long should electric vehicle incentives be in place? Is there a window where eventually they have to go away? Because we saw in China, they actually rolled some back, uh, I believe it was last year or the year before. Um, and we've heard automakers say they shouldn't be around forever. We should let the market dictate. What is the lifespan of an electric vehicle incentive at the federal level? Well, again, I think you're right, and and not something that I, I think policymakers sometimes uh, it, it gets their backs up because they <laughs> think we're asking forever, and that's that's not the case at all. I think um, realistically, what we're saying is, is, look, as long as there's and you know even the incentives that are in place right now don't fully um, eliminate the price disparity between uh, ICE vehicles and ZEVs, they they help, but they don't fully address it. I think what we're saying is, okay, well, until there's close to price parity, we should have we should have that incentive in place to ensure that um, you know that is not an obstacle for consumers' price. That um, 
you know, they, they would be able to make a decision on the basis of something other than price, but price shouldn't be the obstacle for the adoption of the technology yet. So again, um, any studies that you look at these days, they tend to say that for, you know, short, shorter range of vehicles that might have a smaller battery, you might be looking at 2025 and vehicles that have larger batteries, price parity might come around 2030, but it's so somewhere in that time frame. But um, we're certainly not looking at forever. And, you know, frankly, I think um, everybody acknowledges that um, incentives do uh, serve as an external distortion in the marketplace that at the end of the day isn't helpful. So incentives are, uh, you know, I think a necessary evil at this point in time until. Um, until we can get to price parity on the vehicles or closer to price parity on the vehicles. The federal government has a goal of eliminating internal combustion engines, um, but they haven't made it policy. Do your members want to see an eventual all-out ban on the sale of new vehicles equipped with internal combustion engines the way Quebec has said they will do it, the way BC has said they will do it? California has made a similar um, legislative change, they're going to ban the sale of ICE vehicles. Do your members support that? Do they expect that to be part of this? Yeah, that's a that's a good question as well, because I think sometimes a lot of this comes down to, you know, a bit of jurisdictional competitiveness in terms of, you know, who can be seen as the, the greenest sort of thing. But, you know, sort of joking aside, I think the uh, the reality is, is that I think, um, you know, the, the global community is now seized or seems to be seized with the, the need to drive towards net zero by 2050. And I think as individual governments and, and regions, you know, sort of look down the road, they, they do the calculus in order to determine, well, what's it going to take to, to get there? And, uh, you know, I, targets, aspirational targets are, perhaps helpful in, in one regard because it, it sends a signal to the market that, okay, this is this is what we expect is going to happen by a certain period of time. You know, I don't think that we, um, our members would not support uh, an outright ban, as any outright ban or legislative ban on internal combustion engine vehicles, um, at least unless that is done within uh, within the context of, you know, where our market is, which is the the North American market, because it, it serves nobody's interest if Canada were to ban uh, internal combustion engine vehicles, for instance, but um, turn around on the other hand, and, you know, uh, U.S. is not doing that. So you know, all you're going to do is um, encourage people to import uh, internal combustion engine vehicles from the United States if they still want to drive that technology. So I think um, good as a signal, uh, an outright legislative ban, probably not uh, helpful. Um, especially unless it's uh, if it's done on a sort of just a national basis without a you know a regional context. I want to shift gears just for a minute and get into sort of the first quarter um, inventory. There's been some hiccups throughout the industry and the supply chain. Sure. Um, some in the auto industry have asked the U.S. government to dedicate some funding to expand U.S. semiconductor production. Um, you're in contact with the federal and provincial governments here in Canada. Has there been a similar ask in Canada? Is there anything the Canadian government can do to alleviate this chip shortage in the near term or anything it can do to make sure it doesn't happen again in the future? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure in the in the short term uh, that there's much that can be done. I mean, I think we're hopeful that this, this chip issue will be sorted out uh, over the course of this year. But I think really what... Um, 
you know, what COVID has done and what the chip shortage has done, which, you know, is, is actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, an outgrowth of, of the COVID uh, issue, has, um, I think, forced all automakers to look at the vulnerability of their supply chains and, uh, you know, the, re- the need to really sort of harden those supply chains. Um, because right now, I think, uh, you know, whether it's been some of the, the the storms that have ravaged, uh, you know, areas that, you know, are making whatever foam and, and other things down in the southern U.S. states, um, or whether it's a chip issue or whether it's it's COVID and the impact that it has on, uh, you know, production uh, really mm-hmm. across the globe. I think it's forcing all automakers to at least say, well, you know, we can't rely on having just one source of chips or whatever it might be, or even a couple of sources, or instead of having, you know, a just-in-time model, we need to have a model that contemplates having, you know, going back to that type of system that that has at least some inventory of critical components so that um, we can continue production. So, you know, perhaps... um, you know, maybe more so than uh, renegotiation, renegotiation of the USMCA. You know, these types of um, incidents that you know seem to have converged in the auto industry all at once are having uh, folks consider: well, you know, how do we need to you know, reestablish supply chains so that we can keep production running? You know, does that mean that we're going to have more uh, localized sourcing of certain uh, components and what have you? So, yeah, I know that the the push has been made in the United States. I'm not aware of anything similar in Canada at this point, but um, certainly based on the discussion that we had last week with the new uh, Minister of Industry and uh, his counterparts at the Ontario and uh, Quebec level, they're quite aware of the issue and and know what it means for uh, Canadian production. Uh, Let's... Stay with inventory for a second. Describe the inventory situation for your members right now. I know the Detroit Three, which you do not represent, um, domestic production um, is certainly wound down and inventory is tight. What's it like for your members, um, the overseas automakers? Yeah, it's a similar situation, I think, across the board for the reasons that we've outlined in terms of, you know, some are and better, uh, you know, better shape than others. And, and some manufacturers, um, actually did have the foresight to, for instance, on the microchip issue to stockpile uh, microchip for production. But, um, you know, by and large, inventory is uh, still a concern for, for everybody right now. And I think that's one of the key determinants that's going to, you know, uh, decide ultimately what type of a year that we're going to have. Are we going to, you know, surpass, um, uh, the numbers that we did last year, or are we going to stay relatively flat? Um, because uh, it's, it's inventory that is ultimately going to drive that equation at the moment. And right now, inventory levels are generally low for uh, for most of my members, at least. Let's talk about those numbers. Uh, entering 2021, what did you foresee? And now, uh, a quarter of the way through 2021, what do you foresee? Were you hopeful at the beginning and now a bit on edge? I just wonder where do we end up on uh, January 1st when we look back on 2021? How many vehicles will we have sold? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because I think, um, you know, a lot of my folks when we talked in early January were relatively pessimistic on the year looking at the January numbers and again, some of the issues that we've been, been talking about here. And, uh, you know, I think some of the forecasters were even suggesting that, okay, well, you know, instead of maybe 
uh, 1.8 million uh, sales year that we were looking at essentially staying flat. And, uh, no, I, I think while the first quarter, um, I, I think was good, it was, it was up 15%. I think the, yep. the issues that we're going to, uh, that we've been talking about are going to be the, the ones that, um, that ultimately dictate what type of year we're going to have. So I think to a large extent, the jury is still out. It will just depend on how quickly we can get these, these issues sorted out. And, you know, hope that we don't have any other factors that um, and there always seem to be them that that, that come out of left field and and impact the industry. And you know, we just look at the the recent um, you know uh, bolstered lockdowns that have occurred. And while I think broadly dealerships have been able to remain open on an appointment basis, that um, you know, if, if everything's in lockdown, it's not an environment where people are looking to uh, get out of their house and go to a dealership and, and buy a new car. So I think, you know, you, you plan for the worst and you hope for the best and uh, you know, we'll see where we end up. You mentioned dealers kind of weathering that storm. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment and go back to the budget. We've heard for months that Canadians are sitting on record savings. They've sort of stashed away a ton of cash, probably looking to spend it. At the same yep. time, we hear from dealers and analysts every month that margins are up, still sort of profitable to be a dealer. So why should the federal government use tax money or give tax breaks to uh, dealers to increase industry profits if what I just laid out is all true and people have money, people are willing to spend and dealers' margins are up? Why should the federal government step in and give out some incentives? No, I think that's a fair question, and I think this is uh, where the government has been wrestling itself uh, for the last number of months as they put the the budget together. And you know, we've seen uh, you know the, the parliamentary budget officer come down and state, "Well, you know, do we do we really need all of the stimulus stimulus that's been planned to be put into the economy and the budget?" Um, you know, maybe not when you look at. Uh, the housing market and, you know, even that for the first quarter of the automotive industry, that's it, been pretty good. But I think their, their tough decisions are how do you, how do you deal with, uh, the sectors that have been hurt? And auto is mm-hmm. obviously one of them, but, um, you know, we look at, uh, airlines, for instance, and the tourism industry and the hospitality industry that have been, um, bleeding for a year now with no, you know, no real recovery in sight. So I think it's a, it's a balancing act that the federal government is going to have to undertake. And, you know, I think notwithstanding the fact that, um, that the industry has had a, a hard time and, you know, things, I guess, you know, knock on wood through the first quarter are looking positive. But, um, I think at the end of the day, the, uh, the automotive industry supports a lot of jobs at the retail level and at the manufacturing level and at the aftermarket level as well. And I think, uh, um, there needs to be consideration for uh, the continued support of those jobs as well. Last question. What is the single most important thing that needs to change or happen to put the industry back on track to selling, let's say, 1.8 or 1.9 uh, million vehicles in a, in a year? Mm, that's a good question. Because uh, <laughs> there's not, a lot going on, Dave. And so I just right. wonder what the what the big one is. Yeah. Um, so I think, there's a couple of them from my mind and, and not, uh, not just one. I think having some policy consistency is important. Um, you know, when we look at the, uh, at Canada trying to attract automotive investment, you can arguably say, well, you know, good job, well done based on the investments that, um, the Detroit three have made in the Canadian economy. 
know, 5.7 billion last year. Um, and who knows more to come from the parts sector and, and what have you. So, um, you know, at the same time, I think we, we need, if we're expecting investment from automakers and we need to create a policy environment where uh, governments work with industry to uh, help achieve their goals. And I think, you know, particularly on the, the climate change front, as opposed to um, having, as we talked a little bit about earlier, um, you know, inconsistent measures um, between the province and the federal government. And, you know, sometimes even within the federal government about, you know, what we're what we're trying to achieve from a climate change perspective vis-a-vis you know, what we want from um, an industrial and economic development perspective. So uh, policy consistency. And then, um, you know, I think uh, the other issue is that's probably key is just sort of more of what the, the government has, has done is sort of recognize the importance of the automotive sector and, and uh, said, look, we're willing to do, you know, essentially whatever it needs to attract, we need to do to attract uh, automotive investment to, to Canada because I think there's a sense now that Canada has some real advantages in terms of the vehicles of the not too distant future, really, whether we're talking right. about, um, you know, uh, Zevs, uh, which are here now, but certainly not uh, ubiquitous. But also, if we look a little bit further down the road and talk about automated and connected vehicles, um, you know, so you, I think we want to be able to, to capitalize on those strengths and, uh, and that takes, um, you know, recognizing that okay, we do have those strengths here. We're willing to prioritize those as a as a nation. So I think those two things would be the the things that uh, would be most important for keeping the keeping the sector going here. Dave, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast this week. Always a pleasure. Much appreciated. No problem. Anytime, Greg. It's great to talk. We reached David at his office in the Greater Toronto area. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, have a suggestion, or simply want to comment, email me at glayson at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous shows on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play, or on our website, automotivenews.ca. Just click the Canada Conversations tab at the top of the homepage. That does it for this episode of Automotive News Canada Conversations. We hope you'll join us next time. So long, everybody.